Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, joined alongside, as I am every week, by media executive and Chelsea-obsessed follower. It's like a boy band for this guy, Grail Hallett, <laughs> and Over the Ball producer in Syria, a specialista, a young man who oftentimes seems to have the disposition of an 80-year-old sharecropper, Mr. Sam Griswold, today on OTB. Former U.S. Men's National Team defender, soccer Hall of Famer, now the head coach of Fisk University. One of my old teammates, Desmond Armstrong, will be our guest. A great guy, kind, thoughtful, quiet, always let his playing do the speaking for him. In other words, the exact opposite of me. But, you know, guys, I was thinking about it. Uh, you know, my days with Desi, uh, just you remember those days just trying out for a team? You're showing up. You got a duffel bag and mm. you, always show up, you always get the one guy with the. He's got the hairdo and the right flip flops and the, the, you know, the right gear on and all the top of the line stuff. And I used to just love to watch those guys and be like, okay, you can wear all that stuff. You could talk a big game. But what I love about the game was that you eventually had to step out on the field and we had to see what you're worth. Even if you had incredible skills, could you play the game? Did you have endurance? Could you, you know, pass the ball? Could you defend on both sides of the ball? You know, all that stuff. And that's what I don't like about the entertainment industry, which is it's always something else. Like with comedy, it's like, oh, the funniest guy should win. That's how it was in Boston. The funniest person should win. Now it's all something else. Like, well, it's not the type of, music. Oh, yeah, you know, whatever. So uh, I miss those days. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? With yeah, no, well, I, I always thought it was a bad sign at regional tryouts, whether they were Olympics or whatever, where, players had their arms or, or the coaches had their arms around certain players where you're like, okay, this is not going to be totally objective. You know what I mean? So they had the right. coaches doing the selecting had players who played for them there. And you're thinking like, I have no chance. Well, cause they knew, <laughs> you know, you got the, the in and I think yeah. with soccer, you know, I always said to my nephews and stuff who'd played, I said, don't be on the cusp, be like the, the one of the best players because being on the cusp is like, you never know. It's hard for a coach to pick a player. It's like, you know, when you get to, what, a week of tryouts or two weeks of tryouts, it's just hard. Uh, so, uh, but I, I miss those days because you always had that one guy who was like all fancy and just, you know, one fifty fifty ball and he's like, you know, he's home. He's, mm-hmm. he's not playing anymore. All right. So guys, before we get going, we got a great interview with Desmond Armstrong. We covered a lot of ground with Desi. Um, as I said, he's, he's very thoughtful. And I, I used to think, my God, this poor kid, because we were roommates for a while. Just the weight of the world on his shoulders sometimes represented so much more than just trying to put the ball in the back of the net. So it's great to get caught up with him. He's now coaching at Fisk, which is a program he's trying to build. Um, so it's fun. But before we get started with our interview with Desi and everything else we want to cover today, uh, guys, what are you over today on Over the Ball? Grail, what's up? Yeah, so I'm I'm over the uh, the incessant moment moaning from fans, especially in the Premier League, about refereeing, refereeing and by association VAR. Because I've got to say, the first two weeks of the season, the refereeing by all measures has been fantastic. They've let they've let let the players play, um, and uh, the decision making in the VR booth, the VAR booth, has been great too. So I'm I'm very encouraged. Again, only two weeks in, so I'm going to pump the brakes a little bit, but it's a good sign that I think the officiating is moving in the right direction. I think you're right. They made a couple of small changes that made yeah. a big difference, and it was more enjoyable to watch the game, uh, the game that we love. Sam, what are you over today on OTB? Yeah, um, I'm over Liga MX and MLS, like never uh-huh. really quite putting anything that cool together after all this talk of collaborations, you know, continental leagues, etc. I mean, Grail, maybe you can look into this in terms of number ratings, but I'm guessing that the biggest number, you know, audience generator they've come up with is this all-star game, which is, let's be honest, an exhibition game. I mean, yeah, but who, who Sam, really this cares? Is all, this is all you're talking about. What have they done? And they've done yeah. this. Uh, this is which a is step what? forward, I think. Well, which is sort of a you showcase. Know, I, I call it a showcase. showcase. They, just a, what's an NBA, uh, you know, uh, all-star game like? It's a it's just a fun fest. And this yeah. soccer, it was they were getting stuck in last night playing. And um, I think it showed a lot of uh, the the dovetailing of of particular audiences, which I mean, it's still real. This be, is what you talk about on, on all the time with, with the television ratings. Thing. Yeah. I mean, it's still Sam, it could be the precursor again. I I'm totally with you. There's been a lot of talk about Liga MX and MLS forming a partnership. It's mm-hmm. yet to happen, but I think this certainly would be a stepping stone to doing it. Cause you're kind of putting it out there to the court of public opinion saying, look, 
Look at the talent we have between both leagues here. Wouldn't it be Mm -hmm. cool if we brought it all together? So, well, Well, I I mean, to me, I would hope more they get on the same schedule with these, you know, the CONCACAF Champions League, the League's Cup, etc. I I would, I'd be more into watching that than an exhibition game. All the cups that we can't keep track of, as it were. But so, like last night, the MLS All Star Game, they, I thought Fox did a good job. I think they they had their team on there. They gave it its due. Uh, One of my, you know, criticisms, our criticisms, has been, you know, it's two minutes before kickoff and they started. So there's no backstory. There's no way to build any excitement or identification with certain players. So I thought Fox did a good job and they were in the right direction. They gave it. Well, it was FS one. And that was one point that I wanted to bring up is they didn't think it was a big enough deal to put it on the, the, uh, the big network Fox. They put it, but I would agree with that. Wouldn't you? I, I don't know. I mean, to me, if you really want to blow it out, again, this is all about prime time programming, though, and they didn't want to usurp a show for that or shows for that amount of time. But I'm just saying, if you really want to elevate it to the next level, you put it on the main network. It would be like right. ESPN versus ABC. Again, so FS1 what are your, is their branded soccer network. What are you, what, what's the number? What are the numbers like in uh, MLS this year so far? Yeah, uh, so they're yeah. so they're up across the board. Um, let me just... Uh, well, go that's good the, news, obviously. Go, no, no, let me go to the sheet here. Um, yeah, so, so across the three networks, they're up considerably. Again, this is 2021 versus 20, and take 20 with a little bit of a grain of salt because of COVID. And, and it's just a weird year. It's kind of, it's, it's hard for, to see that in light of a regular year, but so ABC is up, was up 50% wow. at 384,000 average viewers. Univision was up 21% and Fox slash FS1 was up 14%. And just uh, FS1 alone, since we're talking about the all-star game, they're averaging 185,000 viewers, which is their highest average of viewers since 2015. All right, so good thing. So it's all good. I mean, I yeah, think yeah. yeah, MLS is really this is all very good news for MLS. I think you know it's interesting people being cloistered over the last couple of years. One of the things you could watch was uh, world football, and I think a lot of people mm-hmm. maybe got a bit of a taste uh, that normally wouldn't have. So um, a lot of player movements. Speaking of world football, going on. What's the latest you guys think on this Ronaldo news? What shocked me? He wants to go to Man City because of Pep, I guess. But wasn't his allegiance to Manchester United? Yeah. Well, I just thought it was so classic. Ronaldo is like, you know, you've got Harry Kane. He's decided he's going to stay put because Daniel no choice, Levy, right? well, Daniel Levy won't let him go. So, and um, city made a big offer. He didn't accept it, whatever. So then out of nowhere, Ronaldo puts his hand up and says, Oh, by the way, I want to go to Man city. And I, I man city had never expressed any interest in Ronaldo. Right. They were interested in Kane. So there apparently is some interest from City right now. But I, again, my personal opinion, I don't feel like he fits that culture. He fits a Man United culture better than a City culture. And again, I just don't think he's selfless enough to play within the City system. Well, he's 39 years old. So, you know, you look at 37, I think. I think I actually had that. I think he's 37. Is that right, Sam? Yeah, 37. That sounds, yeah, that's 37. Yeah, Yeah, he's not 39 because that would be bigger news, I think. Um, But, Sam, what do you think from your perspective on on that? The Juve guy who's still got a year left in his contract and has just decided he's going to go where he wants to go. And why why does he want to leave Juve? Uh, well, I, I don't know entirely. Um, he didn't start this past weekend, which was a huge deal for a lot of people. Not that I could have cared less. Um, he came on and played for about the last half hour. There's that sharecropper again. <laughs> he, scored, <laughs> he scored a nice header goal right at the end of the game in stoppage time that was actually disallowed. So it was a really yeah. odd weekend because you're saying, well, is he on the bench because they don't want him to get injured? Well, no, because you wouldn't throw him in for the last 30 minutes if that was Otherwise. the case. I don't know what's going on. The whole time he's been at Juve, people have sort of not really come to terms with it, in my opinion, in the fact that they're like, what is he really doing here? And have sort of been anxious that he'll leave one day to the next. Yeah, once you build um, a team around him. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm just like, I don't, I just don't care. I'm just so sick of hearing about him. And I yeah. don't think he's made that team any better. I mean, I, I, well, I don't know why you well, needs to keep him. I, to me, they got Ronaldo because they were worried about the Super League being formed and worried about being excluded because no one was going to exclude a team with Cristiano Ronaldo on it. Wow, that's that's deep. out that's, that's out the window. That's, that's out the, the window. What's the point? And that's the concern, Sam. Is just what you've described, which is you know, yes, the talent, but the baggage. 
why would you want to bring that into Man City? Pep doesn't really need him. I mean, Harry Kane would fit their system. Well, the much point better. is moot, because yeah. he doesn't want him. So it's sort of like I, I'd say you. you well, know, I'm not for, saying the cost of it. Could, this could happen. I mean, it could. I could be wrong. Right. No, I, I doubt this is going to happen because look, Kane. They couldn't get Kane, and Kane is younger, healthier. Um, well, not even, I don't know if healthy, but captain of the U.S. team, he's a leader. I, I think, you know, Ronaldo now is really seen as a mercenary. He's just jumping in wherever it's happening. And if you look at Messi, Messi was like, he was Barcelona through and through. It's sort of, they let him down. He didn't let them down. He didn't hop from place and, and to then place. The, and, and then to make things even more interesting, Mbappe has uh, put out there that he wants to go. So you've got about three clubs that can afford any of these guys, basically. Mm. And Mbappe, it's not a surprise. I thought when Messi went there, that was going to create something between with Neymar and Mbappe and one of them not wanting to be the third spoke in the right. wheel, right? Get so me the ball. Just you know. It just keeps going on. All right. So uh, Weston McKinney as well, Sam. He's yeah, I mean, rumored to be leaving, huh? Yeah. Speaking of player movement that maybe hasn't gotten as much attention. Um, if McKinney left Juve, he's been rumored with uh, to go to Spurs and to Everton. Um, that, w- that would be tough. I've really enjoyed watching McKinney uh, this past season in City. I was really the only reason I would watch Juventus play. Mm-hmm. Um, real kind of breath of fresh air for that team. Good energy, etc. And yeah, I'd be sour just because he'd completely disappear from my radar. But I know he wants to go to the Premier League. He's mentioned that in the past. And yeah. Juve did not spend a lot of money to get him. So if they can kind of cash in on that, uh, you know, it does make some sense. It, to me, it would be too bad, selfishly. They'll take it. So, hey, uh, so Syria A being covered by CBS, uh, how are they doing so far? In yeah, audience? not not thrilled about it. I mean, you guys can remember last week I was sour because I had to I had to read, sign up for the subscription and everything. I got Paramount. a little bit of a boost uh, in the Paramount world because I heard they were going to be offering the commentary in Italian, which I thought was really cool. And I've been, as you guys can attest to, calling for this to happen for quite a long time. Then I sort of crashed back down to earth when I actually signed up for the thing. Um, only one game was offered with the Italian commentary, and it only worked on the computer, not on the television through the Fire Stick, which is how I stream sports. It felt like regressing about seven years in terms of a streaming experience after watching City yeah. on ESPN. Um, not HD quality during the game, choppy, jumping all over the place. Fuzzy. Um, fuzz- it's like, you know, you know, when a stream kind of clicks out of HD for a second yeah. and then goes back in, it was yeah. just constantly in the not HD, never quite getting to the HD. All right. So um, that's, a, that's a no, huh? It's like your glasses, yeah. like your glasses were dirty, Sam. Pretty much a no. Yeah. And I mean, I think no one cares about City A, really, but they, this, I mean, they have the Champions League too. And I watched a, a couple of these qualifying games and they, they looked awful too. I mean, I, I would never be paying for this if City A weren't there because you can watch all the Champions League games on the Spanish language networks. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, what is this team, Venezia? They have an American owner and a couple of American players. Buzio wound up there, right? What's the story with that team? Yeah, well, uh, Venezia, which is Venice. Venezia. Um, I've talked about before on the podcast because I think they're doing a good job with an American owner of actually kind of selling the charm that a city like Venice has. Should we uh, call them Venezia or Venice? Venice? Take a gondola ride and watch a soccer match. Um, yeah, you know, you do. You'd have to take a boat out to the to the stadium. Um, awesome. not a gondola, probably, but uh <laughs> Venezia is the actual name of the team. So they have an American owner, they have they signed Busio and they also signed Tanner Testman, another young American. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm curious how they do this year. Certainly, it's a, a story worth following. Um, I mentioned how cool their jersey was a couple weeks ago yeah. because it actually says Venezia across the chest right. instead of you know, some foreign company that doesn't even exist in Italy. Um, and in the first game of the season, the uh, Italian Federation or whoever it was decided, or I guess it would be the league, decided that they had too much uh, of, you know, the team crest on the shirts. They had to play with the actual logo, you know, over the heart um, covered because you can't have the team name appear twice per league regulation. Meanwhile, you can stick an ad wherever, you know, possible at this point, basically. So I'm curious because this was like, this seemed to be this cool experiment. Like, let's do a cool trendy Jersey and let's really get people into this. Your actual and, name of your team on the front. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And <laughs> then uh, it didn't, it didn't even make it to the first game. So we'll see what, we'll see what a uh, compromise is reached and if they right, manage so we, to avoid relegation. So we've got a couple of American players playing in the, in Syria. Um, one player who's not American, who's leaving or watched him play this weekend was Lukaku. 
amazing that this guy's still trying to play for um, to get the respect that he's due, which most people, I mean, obviously the English have a really history of, of just being un, un, uh, appreciative of people's skills. Uh, yeah, but, you know, I, I think ahead, most people defend. know, well, I just, I, most people know it was just a bad fit with Man United and he wasn't used properly. So that's, uh, he that's, was, he, they went so, at him in the press. So you kidding so, me? So that's, that's on, but, but that's on Man United. They, they never, I, I watched, so I watched him play against Arsenal this past weekend and I've seen Lukaku play for, uh, Belgium and stuff, but my goodness, holy smoke! This guy is the real deal. He is a total handful. He occupies multiple defenders because he kind of plays almost like the old Giroud style of back to the goal, coming back, tracking back, touching the ball off. But then he can obviously also take guys on. And uh, I just thought, like, my first thought was, is this gonna, like is this going to marshal? in a new era of like more of the traditional number nine, you've got Antonio who plays for West Ham. It's like the way I grew up in England watching like the number nine was the, like all the play went through them, the way it used to go through a center in bad, in old basketball. Right. Yeah. And it's just like, I just think he's going to make them so much better because he gives them so many more options. And I was like, Timo Werner, who all I kept thinking was like, I mean, the comparison, it's like, now you got a guy who can be a real force up front. And I just think, it makes him really, it makes that team a lot better. Well, they're, they're going to be, uh, they, he's more dynamic than Giroud and Giroud put, you know, he's faster and he's younger and he's, yeah, you know, it he's works just, hard. And, and I think yeah, we had mentioned it off air about the respect that you saw that the other players gave him. I mean, he's, he's, he's earned his respect. You and, see him at the end of the game, everybody wanted to come up and say hi to him. So he's an instant leader too, which is just a great thing to get on the team. And, and Sam, you know, the point is with like the, the premier league, it's the reason why I want certain players. Like I want Weston McKinney to go there because I want to watch him play every week, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and it's covered really well. And so I think it's chicken or the egg type of thing where I want to see guys play. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, it's not always easily accessible. And like you said, all these different services that we have to buy and sign up for. And, and then, you know, the, the announcing you, there's no comfort food as far as the announcing the same announcers every week. And you do have that, um, with the premier league coverage at NBC. And that takes a while though, to be yeah, fair, yeah. you got to build it. You got to build it. But Sam, I thought of you, you know, with Lukaku and Inter, you know, just because you're not, they're not only losing just a great player, but they're le- losing like a great ambassador. I uh, was like just a quality teammate. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And uh, also took really, you know, well to the city and the fans took really well to him. And he really became this icon in a short period of time. I mean, only yeah. a couple of years uh, in, in terms of his use, like the way Inter played with Conte was, I think, a little bit different to how Chelsea play. I, I mm-hmm. believe. I mean, you obviously correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. They're more of a kind of possession team, like to have the ball more of the time. Uh, Inter were more of a reactive counterattacking team. And I, mm-hmm. so if I have an image of a Lukaku goal from that era, it's him kind of getting a hopeful ball, fending off three guys on his own up by midfield and somehow managing to turn and run past them and then either mm-hmm. scoring or, you know, sliding it across for, for Lautaro or, or, or someone else. Um, so slightly different. But um, did, I think, although he did that, he did that, it, but mm-hmm. he also did the kind of check back, touch it off. But the goal he scored was like a Raheem Sterling goal from like mm-hmm. three yards in. And all I kept thinking was Timo Werner wouldn't have been there. Like yeah. he was in the spot you need to be as the center. I don't think German players classically had done well coming over the EPL. It takes a while, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And so, all right. Well, um, Let's get to our, our guest. Uh, let's take a quick break here on Over the Ball. And when we come back, we'll be talking to U.S. Uh, former U.S. national team defender. He, he said he was not a defender. Well, you know what? He's tr- he's right. He played in the midfield. He played outside back. He played the sweeper when there was a sweeper position before it was eliminated from captivity. Um, <laughs> so when we come back, our conversation with uh, Hall of Famer Desmond Armstrong. All right. Joining us now on Over the Ball, he is an old friend, an old teammate of mine. He's the head coach at Fisk University in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee. He's probably got preseason coming up. We'll talk to him a little bit about that. But most of you know him as a, as a former standout U.S. men's national team defender. He's in the Soccer Hall of Fame. Joining us now on Over the Ball, Desmond Armstrong. What's happening, Desi? How are you? I'm well. I'm well. You're looking good, Kevin, man. Hey. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, man. You know. I, got my, I got my COVID non-cut. I got my, my soccer hair, dude, coming back. <laughs> except except the, I have a big bald spot in the middle. That's the only difference between when I'm my playing days. <laughs> Looking good, man. You're looking good. Thanks. So, we're still, we're so, still there. Uh, 
I, I know I'm lucky I have hair because usually men, we lose it on our heads and we get it in our ears. So it's a bad combination. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> say, so uh, you've got to be like what, in the middle of preseason right now? What's, what's I am, yeah. Right we're, uh, yeah, we're at uh, the middle of it. We actually have a tournament this weekend, a uh, local tournament in which we're going up against some semi-professional soccer teams. One of the things that I've been also doing in this past year was looking at how I can further the game at the grassroots level beyond a college uh, context or a college program. And I started a semi-professional team called AFC 615 right here in Nashville, Tennessee. And we, play, uh, we played in the uh, UPSL, which is one of the uh, national fourth divisions semi-pro leagues. Mm-hmm. So this weekend, um, we have launched our own semi-professional league called the Pioneer Premier League. After a year with UPSL, we've launched our own thing. And now I'm going to have my college team, Fisk University, participate uh, in a uh, preseason tournament uh, before we kick off next weekend. Who do you root for to win when you got uh, so many hands in the in the pot there? You got your two, your two teams against each other. It's like pitting yeah, brother so, against brother. Yeah, I'm right at I'm right at midfield. You know, yelling instructions <laughs> on both sides. <laughs> Good things. Well, so hey, so how difficult has it been for you to just coach these last couple of years in the time of COVID? Uh, you know, on top of everything else that's going on. Yeah, actually, you know, when I first got the Fisk uh, position, I was living here in Nashville. I was approached about starting a or continuing to grow a Fisk soccer program. Mm-hmm. That was the year prior to COVID or just in, in the beginning. Yeah, so I, I remember had, we talked to you. I remember we talked to you back then, yeah. Yeah, I just started. And so then COVID hit and everything you know went out the window for everybody, including our program. And right. so coming back into it, I'm in my third year, but I've only coached for one year. It's been very difficult to gauge you know, what you can and cannot do, even uh, as we speak today, um, you know, with the, the, the Delta variant and so forth, you know, it's sort of like a start stop. You know, um, I have a situation right now where some of the kids on my team have not taken the vaccination and they have their own reasons, religious, political, whatever. Mm-hmm. And they've been told just now, they've been told, look, if you don't get the vaccination, you can't participate on our team. And that's by the athletic department and also the university. But my point to that is, okay, you say that, um, and they're still on campus. If they're not playing for the soccer team, they're still on campus and they're still not vaccinated. So you're going to tell them they have to leave. Right. I think a lot, a lot of, yeah, a lot of these colleges are saying you have, especially the private universities are saying you have to be vaccinated now that it's been FDA approved. I think that gives you guys a lot more, you know, juice behind your ask, right? Agreed. Agreed. So I'm just saying the stop and go has been difficult in regard in regards to, hey, we're on our way. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, hold on. We can't fully get into it because of the next uh, permeation of whatever yeah. uh, or the next consideration. Well, the next permeation, this is the only way that most Americans are learning the Greek alphabet by all the variants that come, that come up. <laughs> <laughs> so, Desi, what kind of player do you recruit at Fisk? What kind of player do you go after that, that you want to fit in your program that you're trying to create? Well, for me, I have a situation where I go with the local player because the local player um, typically is an immigrant or a refugee um, in the city of Nashville, doesn't want to leave home necessarily, but wants to get into college education and using soccer to do so. So that's the first person I go after. The second is an international player who's just looking for some type of visa to get into the United States and get an opportunity uh, separate and aside from the country that they're coming from, such as it could be a player who had uh, ambition of playing pro in Germany, uh, but they're not going to make the pro team. They're not going to make the first team. And so now they can continue the education, play at a high level, and they have a little bit of money they want to spend to come into the States and they get a uh, student visa on a five-year window. F1 student visa and they, they come in. And so third behind that would be, you know, um, an American player, uh, strictly an American player, that suburbanite that says to themselves, I, I want to continue playing soccer at a decent level, uh, but I'm not going to make it at a D1 program. Um, and I'm not too far away from home. And oh, by the way, this guy over here who's coaching is, has an extensive background in the sport. So this might be cool. Um, and I want to play. And that person happens to be a suburbanite that typically is black, African-American, if you will, because mm-hmm. it's an HBCU, a historically black college and university, which has picked up a lot of juice in this past year. Uh, Master P is down the street at TSU at an HBCU, state 
a state HBCU, we're a private HBCU. And so that's been the buzzword with the whole Black Lives Matter uh, environment in this past year. And so, you know, some of the suburban African-American families are now looking at HBCUs and, and looking and seeing, okay, I can play soccer and I can get a scholarship and I can still get my education and, uh, and still grow as an individual. Uh, why not Nashville? Nashville is an up and coming city. I mean, it's blowing Great up. City. Man. Oh, yeah, I can't even recognize city. some of the areas around here, man. I've been here for now. Uh, this is my 10th year uh, in Nashville. So I'm a Nashvillian. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good word too, by the way. You know, I've often thought about this and I, I, I didn't mention this with the guys, but I have often wondered, I have a friend of mine, uh, black, went to Yale University. He told his daughter, she's going to Howard University. He, and she's like, well, what about Yale daddy? He goes, no, no, historically black college. Now, if I was a, a football player, American football player in Alabama, Auburn, all those schools, all those players of color should go to a historically black college. They would be the number one ranked team in the in the in the country. It would suddenly wake people up because some of these, and I'm going to generalize a little bit, but some of these southern schools have these black rosters, and yet the coach is like sort of borderline racist sometimes, you know, in his past comments and stuff. And I think like sometimes to say like, hey man, let's let's really bring it where we're going to bring it, and all, and that's what his philosophy is. My buddy Aaron, he's like, no, no, we're trying to strengthen the historical black colleges because that's how you can change society. Um, more effectively. Yeah. I mean, traditionally, especially from an uh, uh, American football perspective or even American basketball in terms of the mm-hmm. big schools have been recruiting the talent uh, from urban environments and brought them in, even from the South, you know, the rural areas. Um, and they brought them in, promised them a good education. And that has been the pathway to the pros. So that's the draw and has been the draw historically. I think that we're at a different stage uh, or at least an attempt, you know, you have Deion Sanders, who's coaching at an HBCU and he's talking about the talent that he has at his school that didn't get drafted in this last NFL draft. Uh, but they were quality players. Uh, the consciousness is such that, and we're at a different stage. The consciousness is that yes, um, we can go in to a HBCU and support HBCUs, but the real support behind an HBCU, uh, is not necessarily just the, um, the student body, it happens to be monies behind the scene. Can they draw dollars to the university to grow the university, even with right. the utilization of a strong sports program? So finally, let me say, you know, soccer uh, relative to a global aspect and the global reach is a way in which HBCUs can use a sport, non-traditional uh, within mm-hmm. the black community, African-American community, and draw a global perspective, draw global students in and have more of a, a futuristic approach to growth uh, for their university. Um, non-traditional sports, why not lacrosse? Uh, right. and, and we're talking soccer, why not women's <laughs> soccer? Um, and I'm actually in the process right now, I just hired an associate head coach with me. He is the son of my former teammate from the World Cup team and uh, my, my best man in my wedding. Uh, Jimmy Banks, Jimmy oh, Banks Jimmy. Jr. Got rest his soul, yeah. Uh, yeah, got rest his soul. His son, uh, J.C. Banks, who played pro as well, um, has now moved here. He and his wife and, and son have moved here uh, to Nashville. Um, it's called paying it forward, brother. It's called paying it forward. I love it. Jimmy was uh, was good to you, wasn't he, back in the day? So, yes, uh, he was. We, my boy. So, I love to see it. So, look, I could, I could keep asking you questions all day, but I want to get the guys in. Uh, Sam? Yeah, Desmond, great to see you again. Um, I just want to touch on a couple of points you mentioned, um, specifically the foreign players. I'm curious your take overall on this sort of re-influx we're seeing in college soccer that seemed to sort of reach its pinnacle with Marshall winning the D1 championship last year. Um, and also just how that trend has historically been at the uh, HBCU schools. I think you have four players on your roster, if I'm not mistaken, who are foreign players. Yeah, yeah, we have, uh, by virtue of the fact that an HBCU as preceding us, preceding Fisk, you have Howard University. So I know there's a, a movie coming out in regards to Lincoln Phillips and uh, Howard University winning the NCAA national championship and being stripped of that and then going back maybe two, three years later and winning the national championship again. All of those players from an international perspective uh, were foreign. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and outside of America, Howard University and HBCU is seen as the Harvard of education in America for uh, Africans, African-Americans, African-Americans. 
So take that over to the broader scope of your question of these foreign players coming into NCAA Division I programs, getting scholarships, getting their education paid for, and utilizing the sport of soccer as a tool to, to get that education, I think has been tremendous. Um, I think that the D1 programs across the board have gone in that direction, uh, mainly because it's an easier recruiting um, situation. Uh, you may have to go after an American that's playing at an MLS academy um, for three months, three or four months, chasing them down. And at the end of the day, they say, well, you know, um, I know you've got a great program. I I'm really appreciative of your attention. Uh, but I'm just going to go down the street uh, to the college here and hang out with my buddies and party for a little bit before I decide what I really want to do with my soccer career. The international players like, hey, you I'm here. Um, I'm over and I have experience and now I can add to your program and, and it's a win-win. So I think it's easier from a recruiting perspective. And that's why you see a, a more of an influx and use of international players at the college level. Is there a balance that you try to hit at Fisk? with foreign to, to American or domestic players? Yeah, my balance is uh, based off of, again, I have local players. So I have a commitment to making an impact in the community, uh, which typically are Americans or, you know, refugees that have become Americans or immigrants that have become Americans. First and foremost, that's my, uh, my mission. And right. then, you know, offsetting that by way of, you know, one or two, you know, international players that are of real quality to take my program to the levels of not just an HBCU context, but um, NAIA, we play in the NAIA. And so you think about Lindsey Wilson. Tough. Yeah, you think about Lindsey Wilson's perennial champs and they have like three teams worth of international players uh, at their university, which has made them what they are. So I wanna have a balance to be able to compete at that level and maybe become the uh, Lindsey Wilson of HBCUs across the United States. You Sounds know, I need good. something. I need a knit. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody needs a hook, man. Everybody needs a hook. Grail? Yeah, uh, Des, a lot of excitement around the U.S. men's national team. And incredible Hold on, I'm going to cut you off, man. I'm going to cut you off because I like that I like that uniform you got on, man. I love that uniform. Thank I you. Got, I, I, he's always got a shirt on. He's well, a fanboy. Well, for our listeners who can't see me, it's a retro Cosmos jersey, so... Um, but uh, anyway, Desmond, yeah, U.S. men's national teams, a lot, a lot of excitement around it, a, an amazing crop of players. We just learned yesterday that Pepe, Ricardo Pepe is going to be joining um, the squad. Um, just curious, your thoughts as a former player. I mean, Alexi was crying on air. He was so excited about how we played uh, in one of the games a few <laughs> matches ago. Just uh, how does Burhalter bring all this talent together? Hey, how does Lex he is, harness it all? Lex has always been emotional, hasn't he, Desi? Yeah. He, he's yeah, he, back in the day. He's yeah. really a bit soft. I mean, you know, yeah. he's a rock and roll guy in terms of image, but he's really soft. And so, yeah, he was he was really excited because obviously in the uh, the Gold Cup, uh, that young team, which was comprised mostly of MLS type players, if you will, um, you know, proved that they had a lot of grit and um, and were able to. You know, see it through to get the championship. Yeah. Um, the first, the first team. And speaking about Greg, is um, the fact that you know he went to Ch uh, Chapel Hill, spent two years at Chapel Hill, and then had a Scottish background, got a Scottish passport, and then went off to Europe to play. So he spent many years in Europe, and then ultimately coached in Europe before he came back to the Columbus Crew, and then from the Crew to the national team. So his perspective is such that, and it's always been that way, even uh, way back in the day when I was playing. Uh, 90 to 94, there was a, a hint of how do we get these players that are playing in Europe to come and play for our team to give us, uh, you know, more experience and a better opportunity to compete at that level. And so that's been happen, happening consistently for every World Cup, um, even as we lead into this next one. So for Greg, uh, he's just following suit. I think he's saying to himself, how do I get the most experienced players, those that are currently playing um, in Europe, uh, not just on a team, but actually playing? How do we get them engaged, get them involved, get them interested so we can build out and have a, a, a broader uh, scope of selection to then have not just one team where we're talking now about, we have maybe two teams of quality players. So I think, and I commend him uh, for that. Now, when you go into the context of uh, who these players are, yeah, you know, we do like everybody else. I mean, there are no more 
per se, uh, homogeneous national teams. Okay, you can go to Italy and say, right, Italy or even Spain in this last uh, Euros, uh, those appear to be homogeneous. But Germany, uh, you know, they're picking up everybody they can pick up that's got a German passport. England, they're picking up everybody has an English passport. In Brazil, uh, the same things hold true across the globe. Holland, um, Switzerland, uh, more importantly. So we're doing the same thing that everybody else is doing globally so that we can be competitive. The difference, I think, and believe and and encouraged by is the fact that uh, we do have a larger selection of players, international as well as domestic, right. um, that we can try to integrate together to form the best team relative to whatever formation, ideology, identity. I think the biggest thing for me going forward with all of these players that we can select is what type of identity are we going to uh, foster? We don't have let me back up. As we a do country, have an, I mean, as a country. As a country. As a country. Yeah. So the U.S. does have an identity or a prior identity, and it always has been give it that all-American try, run, 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 gritty, never die, yeah. um, and we'll see it through. Okay, that's great. That's great. But there's so much more to us, and I think that we are now laying the foundation for what it's going to be for the next 10 to 15 years relative to, again, this broad selection of, uh, of players that we can bring into the national team system. Let me ask you this, Desi, because, you know, you talk about Greg Berhalter. He's certainly done a good job of sort of uh, using a lot of these young players in different combinations and getting, a, you know, you know that as a national team player, former player, you had to play your way into a position and then, you know, you needed competition on your heels uh, to keep you sharp and uh, the way it works. So we can't really give him credit for the development of these players. What's the difference that you've seen in the amount of players that we have and uh, the level of skill and, you know, technique strategy that they have that, you know, perhaps did we not have that in days earlier or did we have fewer players that had that? Because mm -hmm. we always had guys like you, you know, Tab and Claudia, they, you developed some of these players like that, but now we seem to have a, a, a lot of them. Well, I want to say thank you for including me in the same sentence with Tab. I had to. You were staring right at me, man. I had to do it. <laughs> that's, a, that's a huge compliment. But yeah, me, I know. Oh, boy. Skills let on me that say, kid. <clears throat> let me just say that um, the difference has been this, that where, and I'll use Tab and I'll use Claudio uh, more importantly, where we had the talent, but we didn't have the system in which we could place them in in order for them to migrate to levels of, of excellence. So what I'm saying is this, comparatively, you take uh, Claudio and take his son Gio, you take Ab and you take uh, Pulisic um, and, and McKinney. Okay, the difference now is that, hey, we've always had the talent, but that talent was now taken out of Pulisic, uh, McKinney, uh, Adams, and uh, Sergeant, uh, Timothy Weah, that talent has been taken out of America and placed in an existing system and allowed, Oh, I see. Yeah. It's been allowed to grow, matriculate to whatever they're going to be. And now we're reaping the benefits of that. Whereas with Tab, with Claudio, even though they both played out of the country, we played out of the country. We didn't have a large number of us going out of the country and playing for big clubs and actually playing and be, being given the opportunities, they, they went at 18. They went at 17 and 18. We went at 22 after we got out of college. Right. And so there's a huge difference there. And so that's the difference where, again, I say we're laying foundation a la the presence of our team that played in the Gold Cup and we won the Gold Cup, meaning those players that have been playing primarily here in America. So we're laying a foundation in which young players can then play, play, not be on rosters, but play, Actually, make mistakes, make mistakes, and still grow into a first team. Those players that are out of the country have been given that opportunity, but we're still laying like, the foundation. Uh, like even saying, like Pulisic said, his you know the most impactful was his fourteen to sixteen when you know you had you're not getting the proper training here in the states, and he went overseas. And he said that was the big the big difference. So. I think we're all happy with the results so far this summer with the United States. They look good. See, the, Desi, the difference, I think, with this group now, they have the fight that you guys had because uh, you guys did not want to lose because we represented 
not only our country, but ourselves, the game. We were trying to be Pied Pipers for it. You know, the whole thing, like so much. And then you're in you're the United States. So nobody's rooting for you wherever you go. You know, you're always the top dog, but you're playing soccer. So you're not, you know. Um, so I see a ton of new players. But for you and I and our personal connection, um, you know, always trying to figure out how to get the African-American black player to play. And I know that with all the players of color that I've played with, I, I basically learned all about the world from the guys that I played with. But most of the black players I played with were Nigerian, they were Haitian, they were Colombian. And, you know, you were like, you know, you were like it, you were the one black American player that I, re I remember. I mean, I played with two guys in high school, um, which uh, they're from Bermuda though, but they're both great players. But, and, and this is even a, a, a stranger point. It was, I never knew I grew up in a lily white town. And when I played with these two players of color, they were my, I competed against them. But when I got on the same team with them, every single game, someone said something racist, every yeah. single game, not, not one game would go by. And I thought like, what a different reality these guys yeah. are, uh, you know, cause people used to call me in high school soccer faggot. Cause you remember that whole term? Cause it was yeah. like, yeah. can't use that term now, but that's what they would call me because you played soccer. So I all that other stuff, it opened my eyes. But one encouraging sign, and we've talked about it on this show uh, when you weren't here, is the amount of players of color on the national team, in the pool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So much so that I can't keep up with everybody. But, you know, you've got just uh, guys like McKenney. These guys are men. Uh, he acts like a 40-year-old diplomat out there. It's amazing. <laughs> well, what, is, what do you see? How did this happen? How did this finally start to take hold? You've been working on it so long. Yeah, yeah, like I, I will say, yeah, I've been black for a long time. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> and so I think that the, the real issue has been uh, the growth of the sport, first and foremost, in the suburban community. It, it has exploded, I think, since 2010 World Cup when uh, network television showed every game of the World Cup as opposed to just the games the Americans were involved in. That was the very first World Cup in terms of broadcasting. And so the exposure of that went across, you know, several different uh, communities. And so one of those communities has been uh, the suburban African-American community. Now, extended, I think that the reflection of that is now on the field, that we have so many more players that are played and they're mostly suburban kids. Right, right. Uh, black and white, but more African-American suburbanites that are playing that have now migrated to the top that have come through in some regards through college and then through some of these uh, MLS youth academies. Now the issue is moving forward. Um, it's, it's, it's an, it's a black white issue, but not really uh, because we're talking more class. We're talking about, uh, we're talking about a national team that's mostly suburban, if you will. Right. So okay. sort of solidly middle-class. Yes, it is. It, it is middle-class. So when we talk about, you know, the buzzword of how do we get more African-Americans involved? We're actually comparing ourselves to say basketball or football where you say, okay, here are these tremendous athletes and everybody in NFL and everybody in the NBA is a tremendous athlete, black, white, whatever. Um, but how do we penetrate the urban community to entreat more kids in the urban community to get, you know, those superstar athletes playing soccer? And my, my personal belief is this, that America is big enough to have the superstar athletes playing in basketball, football, baseball, and soccer all at the same time because we have so many people. Um, now, having said that, the real issue is the sport is still suburban. It's not an urban situation. It's still play, pay to play. That's why you don't have you know, urban kids playing. Um, and until we get to that, what, what solution that might be, until we get to that, you're gonna have the reflection of a middle-class America playing soccer on both men's side and the women's side. Now, you want to talk about progress or lack thereof, you have to look at the, our women's team and say, look, there's only like one sister that's out there that's playing that starts, okay? Right. And she's playing out of position, okay? She's playing out of position and still starting. Now, when I look at that, I look at myself and say, I was that dude. I, you know, you announced me as the uh, uh, national team defender. I started with the national team as a winger. I played wing and I was never taught how to do that at a high level to utilize my gifts. I was fast to utilize my gifts, gifts so that I could excel in that position. But I was utilized with my gifts for the good of the team. Hey, I can chase guys down. Um, I'm, and and Gans used to say this. I need my horses in the back. 
let him run him down, run him down, Desi, run him down. Right. Okay. And so uh, on the women's side, all of those ladies are all middle class, man. Where are the uh, where are the track stars of America, the women track stars that are playing soccer? So right. that's 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 where think, we are. Do you think, Desmond, that it's just because I see and I talk about it on the show with these guys about how the women are going through growing pains, the same pains that I watch the U.S. men's national team go through and from 94 on uh, trying to establish a league, trying to start to go overseas to play. Um, the same players are playing for two, three cycles. Uh, you know, they're not getting pushed out by the younger players coming up. Is this something that you see that will repeat? I mean, as far as you're talking about players of color and, and sort of middle-class people, it's a, you know, a growing middle-class. So obviously I noticed that more than anything else. It used to be kind of rich kids, Desmond, that were playing soccer because they were in prep school where they were getting all the training. And then it's just, it has worked its way down to, uh, the middle class. I don't, I'm just babbling here. I don't have a question, but I think um, I, I see the women as a reflection of the men, and perhaps that will follow suit as well. Because now that you know, like I said, the U.S. men, they're 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 sort of half players of color, even more maybe. Yeah, yeah. You know, you talk about African American and also uh, Latino. Uh, right. The team is starting to reflect, I think, the full scope of what America is um, across the board, and that means you know middle class and, and the socioeconomic uh, dynamics of that. So the women, uh, I'll just take it a step further. The women are still reflective of what, to your point, what the men's team looked like uh, from 94, prior to 94, but 94 right. onward. So the women, I think, um, are going to go through a situation where uh, we can no longer be as arrogant as we are with the women's team globally. Right. Right. Yeah, we're champs and all that other stuff, but our style of play is being challenged relative to the advancements over a four to five, I'll uh, say four to six year window in Europe where there's better coaching and the opportunities are be being given to the women uh, soccer players there as they were to the women soccer players here by way of Title IX. But the difference is they're being coached. They're being taught in a system that already exists they're being offered a system of play that they're excelling leaps and bounds compared to our arrogance here in the United States. This is the way we've been doing it. Right. And, you know, we're the leaders and so forth. And I think it's coming to bear in the last couple of games, especially in this last uh, Olympics. That's which, not gets back, which, which gets you back to your earlier point. Yeah. About development of men or women. It's, it's really the same thing. So uh, Grail. Yeah, uh, Desmond, you, you referenced uh, the Euros, which I think by all accounts we agree was a really great tourney. Uh, unfortunately, following the final, there was the horrible racist social media attacks on uh, Rashford and Saka and Sancho, who for our listeners were the three black players who happened to miss penalties in the uh, final against Italy. I'm just curious, you know, from your, what was your visceral reaction when all of that stuff was going down? Well, first, my first reaction was uh, with Gareth Southgate. Um, why would he put those players in that position? Uh, he had two uh, added times, two 15-minute added times, um, and, in which he could have gotten those players on the field um, and changed the dynamic of the game because those players were quite fast and they're playing against an older uh, Italian uh, back four. So why not put the runners in and let them run and play different um, change, go back to old school 1966 route one uh, soccer and run them down. So that's the first thing. Oh, that's the and old Kobe. We just throw Kobe in there and uh, like the, uh, you just, to, <laughs> it just to, to try people try to run them down in the 75th minute, you know, it'd be tough. It would have exactly. worked. Yeah. Yeah. It I would have for those guys, but apparently I see these young kids as the new face of English soccer where the older guys are sort of so they were, they never, they played to not lose. And these young kids are cocky. And, and I think I, I, I I'm with yeah. you, Desmond. I think they should have been put in earlier. Even if you're going to take the PKs, you're great at them, but get, let it go. I think a couple of one or two of them didn't even get to touch the ball on it. Didn't even exactly. Get to touch the ball. So that's my point. I, I'm saying they should have got a run, got the blood flowing and then they could have taken the, the penalty shots, but then, they didn't do that. So I, I felt first it was a disservice to the players, mm -hmm. first and foremost, and that rests with the manager. 
Yeah, second regardless, to that, regardless of color, yeah. right? That, that. But then second to that is the, uh, the societal impact or reaction uh, toward these players. And, and know that these elements exist in society. And so it gave, it gave credence or at least an opportunity for, you know, ugly, uglier sides of our society to come forth and use all of the, uh, the mechanisms of communication, social media um, platforms to, to say what they want to say in anonymity. Um, right. And I thought that was, I, thought, I think that's, it, it is what society is. I don't think we should have been surprised by that. I think that we gave or he gave them opportunity and ammunition to voice what they already believe and what society is all about today. It's just the way it is. Right. So, but that um, doesn't surprise a, a person of color. I think. I think. No, I, the, I mean the thing. The difference the I last said, couple of years, Desi, has been. I think even people I growing said, up. Well, in let the me Lily, just say, Kevin. Let me just oh, let me cut you off. I said okay. when I was watching it, I said these dudes are going to be destroyed in the paper, or not in the paper, but on social media. These guys are going to get destroyed immediately if they miss. If they miss, they're going to get destroyed, and they did. Yeah, yeah. I, I just have a quick follow-up to that, Desmond. Um, in terms of Facebook and Instagram, how disappointed are you in their utter lack of wanting to be accountable for this type of stuff, whether it be racist stuff or misinformation in politics or whatever. I mean, how maddening is that to you that they're not taking responsibility? Yeah, I'm, I'm hugely disappointed because I think that the advent of these, uh, these apps and so forth in terms of us being able to communicate so rapidly across the globe is, is phenomenal. I think there's merit to it, but with, with it's just an, uh, it's a proverb. To whom much is given, much is required. And so these guys are responsible, period. They are responsible. So I'm, I'm highly disappointed in moving forward. I think a society that has to call them to be accountable to, you know, what they've created for our use. Uh, yes, you, Luke, you're quoting Luke from that which much is uh, given, much is expected. That's actually uh, Grail's son's name, too. Hey, um, you know what I was going to, the point I was going to make, Des, before you rudely cut me off on your interview. <laughs> no. Hey, um, what it reminded me, I think what I was trying to say was, I think people of color uh, sometimes know what's out there. I think it's been unleashed in this country the last four or five years, six years, maybe it's been, we've seen what what many people um, have known for a long, long time. And it reminded me a little bit of that Chris Rock, uh, Dave Chappelle skit on Saturday Night Live where they're with a bunch of white people watching. They can't believe the returns. And those two brothers <laughs> looking at each other going, no, no surprise here, man. There's no surprise here. It's like we, we're sometimes, uh, you know, uh, we're sometimes surprised uh, by how mean people can be. I know um, John Wooden talked about uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who's just like a sweetheart of a person who was Lou Alcindor at the time, he says he had never witnessed how mean people could be to another human being and for no reason at all. And so I think the one thing that I love about this game, our discussions with you, Desmond, is it takes on these global sort of things. It is, uh, you know, competition and country and race and everything. And that's what our game represents more than, than anything else in the world. We, it, you know, because I think what's been wonderful about it is now we see this game through players eyes, but also through a world that is now coming into us. And maybe, you know, we can make some impact. I think we just gave FIFA back $200 million. I still can't figure that one out. Hey, but I want to also give a plug. Are you still working with the U S soccer foundation? Cause I know Ed Foster was trying to get a lot of inner city kids to play through basically futsal courts, reconditioning those tennis courts. Have you been in touch with him? Is, is that something you've been working on as well? Well, indirectly, I've been working with uh, the Nashville Soccer Club here and their work with the U.S. Soccer Foundation and their initiatives to put futsal courts and also urban get into urban quarters and introduce the sport of soccer. And I think this futsal is the best vehicle to do so. And my club here, Heroes FA, is partnering with NSC to do just that and the use of uh, resources from U.S. Soccer Foundation. So indirectly, yes. And that's good because that, I think that's one way to get inner city uh, kids of all uh, stripes to play. Uh, and it also gets kids. I know in New York City, I was involved a little bit. Grail, I even think you were as well. But some of the courts that opened up there keeps kids off the streets, something to do at the end, at the end of school. So they're, they're playing and 
uh, great coaches like yourself can mentor some of these kids uh, so we can have a better future. Well, Desmond, man, uh, it's been a long time, brother, um, that we've known each other. And it's been too long since you've been on this show, but so appreciate it, man. Good luck with preseason and all the teams you got playing against each other that you're the coach for. Uh, but we appreciate you joining us on Over the Ball, pal. Yeah, appreciate being with you guys again. Thanks so much for having me. I look forward to talking to you guys again when you get a chance to give me a call. Always great to talk to Desmond. He's like a diplomat, isn't he? He's like an ambassador. Yeah. What, a really class, is. What, what a class act. And by the way, the fact that they, he played so many positions, I think is a badge of honor. I mean, very right. few players can do that. You have to be very talented to be able to play multiple positions. But I do know what he feels like, meaning, you know, playing all through my collegiate career in the center of the park, center midfield. And then, you know, you go to the pros and you're an outside back. And it's like mm -hmm. you feel you have to learn that position. You mm -hmm. have all the tools, but you feel exposed out there, you know, yeah. the, the, you know, picking up the angles and, and tracking players back and how and why and then getting forward. And the way the outside backs play now, I think Desmond was ahead of himself because he was sort of had that striker ability. Um, but he could defend. And so he would have been a perfect outside back now in, mm -hmm. in the way outside backs defend, you know, defend and then go forward so far. So yeah. good to talk to him coaching there uh, at Fisk, trying to build a, build a team. So we're getting a good tradition with American coaches as well. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. We have a Jesse Marsh check in there, Sam. What's yeah. Yeah. Speaking following of that, that pretty closely. I, I forgot to mention this at the top. I had too many things I was sour about. Um, so <laughs> I, you know, we, we didn't even mention this last week, but uh, Jesse Marsh over the weekend um, at Leipzig took on uh, Stuttgart and who also have the American coach, um, Pellegrino Matarazzo, the first time ever in a top five league across Europe that two Americans have faced each other as coaches, nice. which I think is a really, really big deal. Um, Leipzig won the game 4-0, so it wasn't much of a game. But to me, this is a much bigger deal than having two players going head to head, as it were, in the Champions League final um if you more you know. impactful coaches right yeah absolutely so i mean i guess my, my question to you guys is am i right that this is a big deal or is it neat that it's not a big deal and that it's just kind of normal that we have this kind of impact no, and presence. Not normal no not i think normal. it's I, I think it's a big deal that hopefully over time will become less of a big deal because mm -hmm. it's accepted as being just part of the fabric i i think it's yeah. less and less a big deal that americans are making it at big clubs yeah already right. i mean i just feel like it's like wow another american went to another big club it used to be uh, a stunner and I, I always get pissed when i see bob bradley because just how badly he was treated just because he was an american it was a really he wasn't even given a chance over there anyway i i so. think jesse i think jesse marsh has not gotten his due at all yet for the fact that he's the head coach at you know a perennial champions league team in germany and yeah. now he's in the shadow of Ted Lasso. So he's never going to get to you know, the top <laughs> when it comes to uh, America. How you doing? Uh, Some biscuits? Uh, All right. Great. Yeah. There. All right. So what do you got? You got a quiz for this week, Sam? Yeah. Um, little quiz uh, based on effective playing time. We should, rename this, we should rename this segment When I Kick Grail's Ass. Would that be called EPT, effective playing time? I don't know if it has an acronym. That's I'm just usually what Americans do to <laughs> of course European we do. things. Um, so this is, uh, if you guys remember, effective playing time is how long uh, the ball is actually in play uh, mm -hmm. of the 90 minutes uh, mm -hmm. of a soccer game. So um, according to Opta, the stats producer, um, across the big five European leagues, what is the average amount of effective game time, ball in play, um, for the past four seasons plus the first few matches of this one? Out of 90 minutes. Out of 90 say, minutes, the average across five leagues. I'm going to say 70. And 59. Okay, it's 54 minutes, 57 seconds. You were closer. Lynn on the board. I'm giving so, you more credit for keeping the effing ball in play. <laughs> we've actually done we've actually done uh, a, a similar quiz to this before, but yes, I feel I like remember. It, it was good to check in and I have a follow-up I want to do. Anyway, which That's league has had the highest effective game time across that period? So again, four years I'm, plus a few games. La Liga. I'm going to say La Liga as well. Okay, it's actually Serie A at 55 <gasps> minutes, 46 seconds. Wow. Which league has had the lowest? I'm going to say the Premier League. The Premier League, yeah. Okay, it's actually La Liga. Oh, wow. We're way 52 off. minutes, Just 39 in, seconds. Intuitively, and that doesn't seem right. 
No, it doesn't. And the reason this um, came to my attention is because this season so far, granted, it's a tiny, tiny sample size. Um, La Liga is down even more and it's uh, it's just under 51 minutes a game and people are starting to really take note of it and, you know, propose some changes, mostly coming around, uh, you know, player simulation, guys staying down, time wasting at the end of games, substitutions, right. etc. So I want to revisit something we have in the past, but I, I wonder why, why are you guys against, because you've said it before, against going to a 60 minute clock that stops when the ball goes out of bounds? It would give the game would be longer, in fact, in terms of the ball actually being in play. And I think of this also because of all the like agitation that comes at the end of a game, watching these, some of these champions league qualifiers, you know, there's a ball in the corner, a guy's trying to hold it and waste time. Yeah. He gets taken down. He stays down. Fans start booing. Fans start throwing stuff. All of a sudden everything goes crazy. And what if the ref just had a little button on his arm that stopped the clock? Would that not kind of, yeah, but wait a minute, some of in basketball, it would be the same thing as, you know, like the, you know, what is it? The, Four corners, four corners stall there. But you know, so if you made it sixty minutes, they would still be stalling in the corner. um, You know, try to to play that out. Yeah, but that's fine. I mean, but the ball's in play. You're allowed to do what you want when the ball's in play. What they wouldn't be allowed to do is lay on the ground for a minute afterwards if they got kicked. The ref would just stop the clock. Right, Braille. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I don't, I don't think of the, I don't think of the time aspect of the game as being that big a deal. Okay. It uh, is to American to, audiences to, because to, like, you know, the NCAA. It's fast. With, it's with it's still a and, fast game. I mean, versus, mm-hmm. uh, versus American football, for God's sakes. Right. I, I think that's what actually pulls a lot of people in. Cause even with the stoppage time and some of the BS you're talking about, Sam, it's mm-hmm. still a relatively brisk sports experience. Yeah, I agree. I just think it yeah. could cut out a lot of stuff. Yeah. I think pretty much everybody agrees. Well, is unpleasant. I think what I, American. I don't fans, disagree with that. I think, you know, part of what American people classically have not understood was the fact that you could do all that stuff, but the referee kept the time on his watch. So it was like, go ahead, guys, you could flop all you want and sit there. I'm going to still, I'm going to add time. Yeah. And that, that becomes so arbitrary as well. That's, that's the one drawback with it. So it used to put the control in the referees, you know, in his whistle. So he kind of, <laughs> the referee's whistle. So he <laughs> had it. Um, and I think th- people don't understand that with like sudden death, you know, with like, right. you know, with like American football with basketball. So um, I, I think agree, you would, you would yeah. just tell the referee to be more strict about stuff and say, that, I'm, I'm going to add more time. That's fine. I, I would agree with that. But I think once you see that there's about 35 minutes of the 90, when the ball's not in play, I, I, right. I, yeah. I don't know that jumps out to me personally. But, uh, yeah. Although when you compare it to all other sports, I just feel like the ball's in action more regularly than every oh, other sport. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, that's, it's that's, really constant yeah. action versus if you pat, match it up against, again, American football, not that I'm right. going after him, but I mean, it's relatively free flowing. Yeah. All right. So guys, what games are we watching this weekend? I know well, what I'm watching. No great surprise. <laughs> Liverpool, Chelsea, just because I'm really Real interested. Sure. I'm re- really interested in Van Dyke against Lukaku. Yeah. That's, nice a, that's two big boys going at it. We know each other. Yeah. Your buddies. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to watch whatever games offered in the Italian language. So nice. That's you're you're consistent, dude. You won't be going back to your foggy glasses experience with Paramount plus. Well, it'll be on Paramount plus. I'll just have to watch on my computer and (laughs) find the one game that no one cares about. So they put in Italian. Oh my God. Oh, we're we're doomed. Gulliver. We're doomed. Gulliver. We're doomed. All right, boys. (laughs) Anything else uh, you want to go before we, we wrap up here? No, I just thought Man City Arsenal might be interesting because it's always Pep against Arteta, and you know that's the Arsenal struggling. Of teacher, yeah, they're really struggling, and Man City was back to being Man City again next week, right. last weekend. And, so. Again, it's always depth. I mean, Arsenal's had some injuries; they've had COVID battles, and um, Arteta. I don't, I don't think he lasts a season. Anyone agree with that? I think he's in. He, I think he's, he's in, in trouble. Shaky ground, no doubt. Yeah. Hey, did you see this? Uh, Tuchel said that he thought uh, Frank Lampard should have been given more time. Did you see that? Uh, <laughs> That's easy. For, it's easy to say for a guy who's just extended, had his contract extended. Yeah, but I mean, it's. I think that's so rare that that coaches do that for each other. That whole fraternity. I find that a little bit disingenuous, to be totally honest. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, come on. He's coming from a guy who just got another two years on his contract. But what does that have to do with his comments about saying Frank Lampard should have been given well, more time? Because he's in a totally safe place, and it's like it's just I don't know. I mean, 
So, so he shouldn't. No, have I been got hired. two sharecroppers. On wait, wait, no. Now. So what you're saying is, so Tuchel saying he shouldn't have been hired, right, at the time because he thinks Frank Lampard <laughs> oh, wasn't given enough time, which I okay. don't know. Because Lampard also got rid of the player, uh, director of player personnel, Micah Manilow, which yeah. was a surprise to me. And, you know, one of the things about coming in too early is, you know, let's say with Arteta at Arsenal, he comes in yeah. and, and he's got that infrastructure that's been built over years and years. And you come in, if you try to make changes too quick before getting the lay of the land, uh, you know, it can come back to bite you in the ass. So, right. you know, so anyway, all right, bite on the ass and we'll get out on that one. Uh, all right, everybody. Uh, good time. Good lot to catch up on. Great game. The couple great games a weekend this weekend to watch, and the U.S. Men's National Team qualifying coming up in September. So I think Champions League that. draw today as well, I believe, Sam, and then roster announcements for the U.S. Men's National Team either today or tomorrow. Or tomorrow, I think. Yeah. Tomorrow. So okay. Probably when wow. you're getting this podcast, where you yes. podcast, where you download them. All right, everybody. For Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett. Um, Kevin Flynn, thanks for joining us on Over the Ball. I'd like to thank our guest today, uh, the great Desmond Armstrong. Uh, we'll talk to you next time on OTB. 